Well, today we're looking at another dangerous prayer, actually two of them. The passage we'll look at contains two prayers. One that's dangerous in a, I guess, a bad way. The other one that's dangerous in a good way, and we'll develop that as we go. But before we look at that passage, let me remind us of what the good news is. We talk about the message of Jesus being good news. Why is that? God created us for himself. He created all of everything we see, the universe, for himself. Uh, But sin entered the world, and it marred everything. And so we are born into a broken world. You know that. You look around. It's broken. We look in ourselves, and we see that it's broken. And yet, even though we're born into this world separated from God, God has made a way back to himself. And that way comes through Jesus Christ. And sometimes we make it seem so complicated, complex, difficult, but really it's very simple. Jesus, a number of times in the New Testament, talks about how to enter the kingdom of God, how to enter the kingdom of heaven, how to be forgiven, how to have eternal life, how to have a relationship with God. And it's very simple. And the passage we're going to look at this morning, it couldn't be simpler than what we're about to read. You know, sometimes when you look at portions of Scripture, Old Old Testament, New Testament, sometimes you need a little bit of uh, interpretational skill. You know, you need to pull out a concordance or a or do a word study, or maybe look at the grammatical structure of a sentence to understand what is the author really wanting us to understand about this particular passage, but not with this one. This one, it is pretty clear. It comes from Luke chapter 18, and this is how it goes. Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. Here's our first prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified, that is, made right with God, justified before God, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's the end of the story. Now, why did Jesus tell this story? Uh, He he mentions it at the very beginning because there were people who had confidence in their own righteousness, confidence in their own good works, their own good deeds, and, and they felt like that was the thing that would make them right with God. That, that, that those things would lead God to justify them. So Jesus wants to be clear, no, that's, that's not it. And so he tells this story of what it means to be justified by God. And he uses two characters from society who are at polar opposites. He uses the Pharisee, we'll talk about the Pharisees in a moment, and the, not just tax collector, but the despised tax collector at the other end of the spectrum. And all of us in this room, we find ourselves somewhere in between 
this societal spectrum. Now, in a few moments, we want to look at the prayers of each of them. Why are they dangerous in their own way? But I thought it'd be good to, first of all, make some observations of both the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's, talk with the, let's start with the Pharisee, get a little background. Now, the, the start of the Pharisees, this group of people, it's a little bit unknown. It's shrouded in mystery. But somehow the, the Pharisees began around 100, 200 A.D., a couple hundred years before Jesus came on the scene. And the, the word Pharisee is from the ancient Aramaic language, meaning separated. Separated from what? Maybe you know some of the history of the Middle East. But it was the Greeks who came in and, and conquered that region. And they brought with them all of their worldview, their belief system, their mythology, their, their many different gods. Maybe you've heard of those before. Which was a threat to Jewish belief because the Jews were committed to God's word, to scripture. We call it the Old Testament. It wasn't old to them. It was just the Jewish scriptures. And there were a group of people who said, we are not going to cave to the encroaching Greek culture. We are going to call themselves the Pharisees. And they, with great precision and exactness, tried to keep all of God's 600-plus laws in the Scriptures. That's how many there are in your Old Testament. The, the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, the moral laws. They, I love this word, punctilious. They punctiliously tried to keep every single law. And good for them. And they were admired by the, by, by the Jewish culture. They separated themselves out so they are not influenced by this encroaching Greek culture. Good. However, something happened. <laughs> Somewhere they jumped the rails. Somewhere they just went too far. And what they began to do was beyond those 600 plus laws from God, they began to develop even more rules and regulations and, and they began to make them equal with God's law. And they began to see themselves as sort of morally high and mighty. And they began to look down their noses at other people. And it almost became like a club. We're in and you're out. And so this is where the rub between Jesus and the Pharisees came along. If you've read the New Testament, you'll know that Jesus oftentimes went toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, nose-to-nose with the Pharisees. And he would say things like, like to, them, to, to them, things like, um, you have made these extra rules and regulations equal to God's law. You can't do that. In fact, the, the rules and regulations you're asking other people to keep you don't even keep them themselves. You are hypocrites. At one point he says seven times, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. You are hypocrites. Maybe you're familiar with, with the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6. Jesus goes at the Pharisees and says, they, they, when they give their money to God, they make sure everybody sees them doing it. When they fast, they make sure that everyone notices that they're fasting. When they pray, they make sure everyone hears their prayers. It was more about them than it was about God. And worst of all, Jesus says to them, you are making it impossible for people to find God. Well, today, we don't have the Pharisees any longer, but the spirit of the Pharisees is alive and well. 
Too many churches have developed beyond God's Word extra rules and regulations and rituals and you got to do this and this and this and don't do this and this and this and they've become more like a club than a center for worship. And many people have walked away from the church because of that mentality. Some of you grew up in that kind of church where you remember this is more like a, you know, club setting. i got to do this and this and this and that and that and that. And Some of you maybe even have stayed away from church for a long time because of that mentality and only recently have found your way back to church hoping that something has changed. Well, that's the Pharisees, the professional religious guy on one end. But on this end, you have the tax collector. And by the way, this was the prayer of the Pharisee, just to remind ourselves, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. Okay, Pharisee. Let's go on to the tax collector. Some of you at home might have a King James Version Bible. And in the King James Version Bible, it won't say tax collector. It says publican. A publican was a tax farmer, the person who was in charge of collecting taxes for its culture. Now, the reason people hated the publican, and they were hated in every culture, and every culture had a publican, because when a conquering nation came in, one of the first things they did with the conquered nation was find somebody who could collect taxes for them. And how they would find somebody to collect taxes for them is they'd say, you collect taxes for us, and when you do, you can skim off the top and take a little money for yourself. That's why they were hated. The publican, the tax farmer, the tax collector was a turncoat. He was like a trader. He was wealthy, but not just wealthy. He was a wealthy cheat. So... Along comes Jesus. And one of the first things Jesus does is collect his 12 disciples who he will train to take the message of Christ into the world. And one of those disciples is Matthew. Who is Matthew? One day Jesus is walking along as he's collecting his disciples and he sees a guy sitting at the tax collector booth. It's Matthew. And he walks up to this tax collector named Matthew and says, follow me. And Matthew does. And the first thing they do is go to Matthew's house, and Matthew invites all of his tax collector buddies, and they have dinner together. If you read chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 9, it's, 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 a, it's a picture of Jesus having intimate fellowship with tax collectors. Tax collectors. And the Pharisees come to the house, and, and they're outside looking in, and they finally say to Jesus, how can you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Did you notice how I said that? They actually said it like that because there was a separate category. There were sinners and there were tax collectors. How can you eat with them? Because the Pharisees and everyone else saw the tax collectors as way down here, beyond, beyond the reach of God's grace, beyond the reach of God's love, beyond the reach of his mercy, beyond the reach of of his forgiveness. That's how bad 
the tax collectors were. Now, what about today? Well, we have the IRS. That's not a bad thing. Actually, it's good that we have the IRS. You know, every society has to move forward collecting taxes, but it's the, it's, it's the, it's the kind of people that represent who the tax collector back then was like. It, we, could, we could go up and down the rows here and, and, and share what's on our mind when we, when we answer the question, what, what group of people or what person do you think is outside the reach of God's mercy and grace and love and forgiveness? Who would that, who would that be? Well, this is the prayer of the tax collector. Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner and that's it. That's it. Now, <clears throat> when I found out that we were going through this series called Dangerous Prayers, I was so glad that we were doing the one on how do I forgive my enemies? And, and, and how do I live with an undivided heart? But when it came time for me to find the dangerous prayer to talk about, I kept coming back to this passage because, because it deals with two different prayers, two prayers that are dangerous in, in different ways. And I want us to explore why that is. Why is the Pharisee's prayer so dangerous? This, this religious professional here, as opposed to, this tax collector down here who beats his chest, can't even look up to heaven and says, oh God, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. Why is this prayer so bad? I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. That's his prayer. Why would that be a dangerous prayer? I, I was talking to someone the other day regarding this prayer, and they said, you know, I've never prayed a prayer like that, and I imagine you've never prayed a prayer like this. But this person said, but the thoughts of that prayer have found their way into my own mind, and there's the danger. The, the words of this prayer can find their way into our thoughts and into our personal theologies and dangerously affect the way we approach God. And that's what I'd look at, like to look at from this prayer. What are the dangerous elements in this prayer that can find their way into our own lives and how we approach God? The first one is this. There are, there's a comparison of self to others. Now, that's not always bad. We compare ourselves to others. Maybe what we're wearing or we compare our kids or we compare our you know, house or we care, compare our car or whatever. And usually it's just rather, you know, not, it's not that serious. But we compare, we compare. We can compare up, we can compare down. Somebody said the other day, Jay, how is it that you can never go without talking about Ohio State in a message? And I think, well, this, this is an easy one here because I compare Ohio State to Michigan. We find our ways, we find ways to compare ourselves up, so we're looking down. If you ever find yourselves really down, thinking my life is not what it should be, uh, go with us some summer to Burundi or go with a team to Mexico or go with a team to, 
I think we have a team going to Kenya this year. Go, go there, and you will feel better about yourself immediately. Um, the, the, the Pharisee, he says, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a cheater. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I, I, I'm not like this tax collector. I, I fast, and I, and I tithe. And, and I think, well, good for him. He's a, he, he's, a, he's a moral person, which is really good. The, the problem is this is that his, his standard of comparison is set so low. He compares himself to the, to the tax collector. We can always find someone to compare ourselves who perhaps is just not as good in certain areas as we. So um, a, a few weeks ago, I, I've been to three weddings in a row. My wife and I have been. The first one was our sons. That was amazing. And then our nephews and then our friends. I have another one this coming week. Holy smokes. And then two more after that. It's wedding season, I guess. But uh, the first two weddings were outdoors. And the third wedding was in a formal church setting with pews. And in the back of each pew was a Bible. And on the front of each Bible, it said this, Holy Bible. You've seen that. Maybe you have one at home. Bible means book. Holy is on there because it represents all of the words and expressions on the inside of that book. Holy. God is morally perfect. That's why it's called holy. That's why God is called holy. Now, now, what if this Pharisee were to compare himself not to the tax collector, but to a morally perfect God? What would, what, what would that look like? I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you. The Apostle Paul, he, he was called the Pharisee of all Pharisees. He did everything right. But then when he writes to the Romans in the first three chapters, he concludes, there is no one, Jew or non-Jew, really a good person, not a really good person. There's no one who is righteous, not one. And then he goes on to say in chapter 3, we have all messed up and fall short of God's perfect standard. All of us. And that's what happens when we set our standard of comparison at God. We fall short. So this is the first problem in this prayer, his comparison to others. But there's another problem, his contractual arrangement with God. Did you pick up on that? If you read through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you'll see that God is really down on idolatry. You'll read about it in the New Testament as well. Do you know what idolatry is? It is the effort to apply enough pressure in order to leverage your God, whatever God that is, to do what you want him to do. All of the religions of the world, except true Christianity, are a form of idolatry. If I do this and this and this, I can get this God to do this. That's leverage. It's a, it's a this for that. It's a, it's a quid pro quo. That's what a contract is. I do this, you pay me. And the Pharisee says, I, I haven't done this, I haven't done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. Therefore, God, you must justify me. And that's the way many churches teach it today. If you do this and this and this and don't do this and this and this, then you're okay with God. That's a problem. 
Because just like the Pharisee, if that's your mindset, just like the Pharisee, that sets you up for confidence in self-righteousness, which is a dead-end road. One of the the downsides of being a pastor is that people always expect you to talk about spiritual things. But one of the upsides of being a pastor is that people always expect you to talk about spiritual things. What I mean by that is that I really like talking to people about spiritual things, about their belief in God. What, what, What do you believe about God? And Every now and then when I'm sitting with somebody at a restaurant or talking to them in the neighborhood, well, the, the issue will come along, spiritual things, God. And, and, and the impression I begin to get is this, and this is the way many people think, maybe you, that they, they, have a, they have a box they're carrying around, and in this box are all of the good things and good deeds they've done in life. And the more good things they can put in that box, the heavier the box gets. And someday they're going to to put this heavy box on this giant cosmic scale. And hopefully this giant cosmic scale, all of these heavy things will outweigh any of the bad things they've ever done. And God will justify them, make them right with him. That's the way they think. And sometimes I will say with sensitivity, with gentleness, I will ask the question, how do you know when you have enough in your box? How do you know when your box is heavy enough? And usually they don't know. They're just guessing. The problem is, we can never have enough in our box because we're talking about a holy God. How do you know you would ever, how would you know when you ever have enough? It's like like a salesperson being told to meet a quota but never told what the quota is. The quota is perfection. So, this is why this prayer is so dangerous. There are dangerous elements in it. We find ourselves at times comparing ourselves to each other. That's not right. We find ourselves in a contractual arrangement with God. If I can just leverage God to do this. Or or confidence in our own self-righteousness. It leaves us short. And then Jesus talks about the prayer of the tax collector. This beautiful, simple prayer. Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. But I think, why, why would this prayer be dangerous? Maybe you've read, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in that book, there is the lead character named Aslan, who is a lion. And he's a type of God, a type of Jesus. And at one point, the children ask Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is not safe, but he is good. And let me just say, this prayer, while it's not safe, it is very, very good. This prayer requires humility. Um. Imagine, imagine living your whole life believing a certain way, behaving a certain way, and all the way along you think that is right. That's the right thing to believe. It's the right way to live. And then in a flash of light or over a period of time, you realize, 
I was wrong. I was just wrong. And that can be unsettling. That can be uncomfortable. It can be very hard to admit. I mean, this is the way Jesus ends the story. I tell you this. I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There you see the word humility, humble. And the the people listening to the story must have thought, are you kidding me? This Pharisee with the big box, the big heavy box is not justified by God, but this tax collector who has nothing, he's justified by God? How does that work? We just... We just sang at the very end, before the message time, from the old hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. One of my favorite lines there, it just simply goes like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I have no box. I have no box. I have nothing in my hand. I simply cling to what God has provided for me through Christ The dividing line between the Pharisee and the tax collector is humility. Now, I'm not sure exactly when this happened, but it could be that while Jesus is telling this story, there are mothers who are bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed by him. That's what they did in those days. They brought their children to the the rabbi to be blessed. And I say that because the very next verses after this story is this story of moms bringing their children to Jesus. And the the disciples want the moms to get out of the way because Jesus is teaching. And Jesus says, no, let the children come to me. If anyone wants to come into the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven, they must come as a child. That's what he says. It's like this is the perfect illustration, the perfect physical illustration to demonstrate what he had just told in the story. What do we know about a child? That they humbly admit, I have a need. (laughs) That they humbly place their trust in their parent. You saw babies up here today, children being held by total trust. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I have no box. I come as a child, trusting in you. Humility. My, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Every time, every time, every time. It's not the real super religious prayer, and I compare myself to others. And it's just, I have nothing. I have nothing. I just, I just want you, God. Now, there's another thing required in this prayer, which makes it a little bit dangerous. And that's bravery. Some people think that in the crowd when Jesus is telling this story, there's a man by the name of Zacchaeus who was a tax collector. Not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. He was hated by many people judging on how the crowd responded to him. Now, the reason people think that is because in the very next chapter, in the very first verse, is the story of Zacchaeus. He's the one who climbed the tree to see Jesus, and then Jesus invited himself to his home And at the home, Zacchaeus says, I am going to repay everyone I cheated four times the amount. What was Zacchaeus doing? He was was, uh, um, uh, organizing his outward life to match what he believed inwardly about Jesus. 
Can you imagine what that would have been like to admit he was wrong in front of all the other tax collectors, in front of all the other people? How humiliating that must have been, how hard that must have been. But do you know sometimes when you become a believer, it's not easy. One of the quotes I've heard numerous times over the years is, when, when you're in the center, there's no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. There's no, safe, there's no safer place to be than when you're in the center of God's will. And I think that's a bunch of baloney. Talk to, the, talk to those who are becoming Christ followers in India or China or places like that. Or maybe it's not been easy for you in your own family or at the workplace, but you are a Christ follower. It's not easy sometimes. It takes bravery to stand up and say, I follow Christ. It's dangerous in a way. When I was age 20, I prayed a prayer. I had grown up in a church where it was really all about comparing self to others. It was, always about a, it was all about a contractual arrangement with God. It was confidence and self-righteousness. But at about age 20, it dawned on me. And I pray, God, I want you in my life. I want you to forgive me. I will follow Jesus. Now, that's pretty much all I prayed. That's all I knew. But I knew I needed that. Which sounds remarkably like the prayer of the tax collector. Oh, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Earlier, I said the good news is remarkably non-complex. It is very simple. Here's the good news, that if you're unsure where you are with God, if you're unsure that you've been forgiven by God, if you're unsure you have a relationship with God, all it takes is, oh God, have mercy on me for I am a sinner, and then having the bravery to follow Jesus. And that's it. Even if you've been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, what a beautiful prayer to pray anyway. Because every day, I'll speak for myself, I make a mess. <laughs> I mess up in some way. What a great prayer. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he does. Scripture says his mercies are new every day. Go to him. That's how good. He is. Let's pray together. And now, God, thank you for your word and the truthfulness of it and the simplicity of this message from Jesus. Oh, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Every one of us in this room can identify. For those who have never stepped into your family, help them to pray that prayer and to have the bravery to follow Jesus. For all of us who have made the decision, give us the bravery to stand up and follow Christ. And every day, just call out to you, Lord, I need your mercy, for I am a sinner. And you are that good to provide that. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.